Because it matters. Do you realize when you think about the issue of prophecy, can we turn that down a little bit, please? The issue of prophecy, that it was the sole thing that Jesus predicated your belief upon. In fact, he said, I've told you these things beforehand so that when they come to pass, you might believe. That's why it's important. It disturbs me sometimes when I hear pastors undermine or, or not emphasize prophecy. And it's kind of gotten away from that. The church, you know, there was a time I was sharing with, with John earlier before we started tonight, you know, that back in the early 80s, there was an urgency. Uh, I'll say it amongst my own guys that I, that I taught with, you know, Calvary Chapel. There was a lot of books that we wrote and, and uh, Chuck wrote and, and uh, The Final Curtain and many others uh, during those early years because it was evident that Jesus was returning. Well, <laughs> it's more evident today. And so many more things that we can point to as, as a token of his imminent return. So I'm so excited about that. Paul, of course, the apostle, are we ready? Uh, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 7, we're going to pick it back up. I want to overlap a little bit because last week we had a little technical error. So I'm going to be picking it up in verse 12. But Paul writes this chapter because at this particular time in his ministry, Paul is convinced that he's living in the moment that Jesus is going to return. He's convinced. Now, how could Paul the Apostle, who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, be so wrong? That's a good question. And I have no definitive answer other than this. When you think of the inspiration of the Bible, the Bible says all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Theonoustos in the Greek, God breathed. God breathed by the Holy Spirit through these men of God, and they moved as they, they wrote as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Some people believe that when, when, it, when you're talking about inspiration, he's talking about dictation, that somehow Paul was sitting at his table with his pen in hand, and he was going, what was that again, Lord? Okay, now how'd you spell that? No, that's not the way it happened. The Lord, using their personality, using their perspective, using their flaws, their good, their bad, the ugly, using all that, delivered unto us what we have as Holy Scripture. So there were times in Paul's life, as the one we're reading about now, when he was convinced that he was living at the moment, and the church was, when they would see the physical and imminent return of Jesus Christ. So as we read into this, and as we're studying this, you've got to keep that in mind. So let's go ahead and pick it up, and we're going to just recap a little bit in verse 12. Paul says, but to the rest I speak, not the Lord. Speak I, not the Lord. If any brother have a wife that believeth not, and she be pleased to dwell with him, let him not put her away. And the woman which have a husband that believeth not, and if he be pleased to dwell with her, let her not leave him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Else were your children unclean, but now they are holy. Now, this is basically what I call the Joseph syndrome, and that is the unbeliever is always blessed, sanctified, set aside for a holy use. You remember Potiphar when 
Joseph was in the house of Potiphar. Potiphar's house was blessed beyond measure. Why? Because he was a godly man? No, he was a scathing heathen. Joseph was a godly man. And Joseph is one of those Christ types that I love because you'll hear people say, well, there's nobody perfect in the Bible except Jesus. Well, that ain't not necessarily true. When you look at guys, and most of them were, like us, flawed drastically, Joseph comes across, though, as a guy who wasn't. You don't see any major sin in his life. You see major sin being committed against him, but you see him stand fast in his integrity and in his position within God, and he stays faithful to the Lord. And so everybody he's around is blessed. And so I call it the Joseph syndrome. And so even in a marriage, in a similar fashion, this is what happens when people get married. And of course, he's talking about people who are already married and who come to the Lord. Happens all the time. In my uh, uh, tenure as a pastor and as a Bible teacher, I've had the privilege of leading many people to Christ. And when I lead somebody to the Lord, and whether it was a woman or a man, and they were married already, and, 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 and knew that they were both unbelievers, I would warn them. Now, you take a stand for Jesus. You've given your life to Christ. Now let me tell you what could happen. Somebody could not like it. I've seen it happen. This is what Paul's dealing with. This is what he's talking about. But he says, if they want to stay, let them stay. You know? The fact is, is sometimes when people get into that situation, I heard a lady tell her husband one time who had become a Christian and he was radically saved and you could tell that the Lord was really training him and gifted him in teaching. And he was, you just knew inevitably he would be a pastor. And his wife, uh, who was getting upset at the time, uh, told him, well, I didn't sign up for this. I didn't marry a preacher. And she hadn't. That's true. She hadn't married one. And so she wasn't really keen. On, but now, I told you that today. later on, she did get saved. And uh, it all worked out. But sometimes it doesn't. You know, sometimes they don't. Sometimes they want to leave. And so, but being sanctified, you know, he says elsewhere, your children unclean. He says, but now they're holy. And you've got to keep it in mind when he's talking about the issue of holiness, he's not talking about the issue of salvation. And so often people will acquaint that, you know, he says, now they're holy. They're set aside, sanctified, set aside for a holy use. But that's got nothing to do with salvation. You can't acquaint it. So the unbelieving spouse is not going to heaven because of the spouse who's a believer. Because he's going to go on to say this here in a moment. He's going to say, how do you know, O wife, that you shall save your husband? You don't. And it's the same way with children. Now, I, I have no problem. You know, I, I've heard a lot of discussion over the years. Uh, men I respect, we talk a lot about the issue of accountability. What's the age of accountability? You couldn't show me a passage in the Bible that says anything about that. Now, I know the Lord's merciful, and I know God is gracious. And I think that, you know, uh, he's, the one prophet said, having come forth from my mother's womb, having done no good or evil. I know God is gracious. I have no problem with children going to heaven. But can I give you a definitive verse on that? to give you comfort in it. No, I can't. But I know the Lord, and I think that God is gracious. And so, but people make a lot of, you know, definitive uh, statements doctrinally and those type of things in relationship to those things. I'm just not sure that we can do that. And so, uh, you've got to keep it in perspective. But being sanctified or set aside for holy use is not the same as, as being saved. 
He does say verse 15, though. He says, but if the unbelieving depart, let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases. Sometimes people do not want to stick around. It's not what they signed up for, just like I told you the one story. They get upset, and he says, look, let them go. Let them do it, you know. He says, for how knowest thou, verse 16, O wife, whether thou shalt save thy husband? Or how knowest thou, O man, whether thou shalt save thy wife? But as God hath distributed every man, and as the Lord hath also called every one, so let him walk, and so ordain I in all churches. I want to draw your attention to the fact that Paul had just said that the unbelieving is sanctified by the believer. And that is set apart, like I said, for holy use. Here he was dealing with those unbelievers in marriage who wanted to, to leave. And he encourages the believer by saying, well, just let him go. Now, that's kind of hard, to be honest with you. It's easy for him to say. <laughs> I heard a lady tell me that one time. She wasn't so keen on it. But when you take it in perspective, what was Paul saying? We have all seen bad marriages, antagonistic marriages. We've all seen war zones. I wouldn't even call them marriages. It's more like a battleground. And so often when you're dealing with a believer and an unbeliever being joined together, sometimes a believer, be it a woman or a man, sometimes will not want out of that situation because they're going to, they're going to win them for Jesus, you see. And the unbelieving person is just intolerant of that. And if they wind up staying in that situation, as Paul's going to say, the Lord has called us to peace, th that situation winds up very bad. It's not a good thing. You know? So it's, nobody's being blessed out of it. And so Paul says, how do you know, you know if you're going to save them or not? You're not. You're not you know, you know, you, all you can do. You know, the, Paul wrote to Timothy, and as we went through it, the, the ladies, they, they, I'm sure you remember the verse where Paul says, if any woman has a husband who obeys not the word. Not necessarily talking about an unbeliever, but maybe even just a believer who's not obedient. He says, let his wife, without the word, win him by her chaste conversation or by her dedication to the Lord. But sometimes that doesn't work with an unbeliever. They're already antagonistic. Jesus said, no man can come to me except what? The Spirit draw him. So he's going, look, the unbelieving depart, let them depart. You don't know if you're going to be able to save that spouse. You know, it's a question. It's a rhetorical question that Paul's asking. Do you know? No, you don't know. So in a marital union, an unbeliever is sanctified by the believer, but it's not to be misconstrued for salvation. Look at verse 18. Is any man called being circumcised? Let him not become uncircumcised. Is any called in circumcision or uncircumcision? Let him not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing but the keeping of the commandments of God. Let every man abide in the same calling wherein he was called. I love this verse. You know, it's an interesting verse. I've heard it twisted, but it's actually pretty simple. Paul here is dealing with the condition that you were in when you came to Christ. How were, what, what condition were you in? You know? Now, I kind of relate this because of, of my uh, heritage. You know, I kind of relate this to this. Uh, it, there's this Messianic movement. Not amongst Jews, though. You know, the Messianic Jews are simply Jews who believe in Christ. That's not a big deal. 
plenty of them nowadays. There's going to be more of them here for long. But there are Gentiles who have been sucked into this. And now they want to keep the law. Now they want to keep the festivals. Now they want to do... It's called the Messianic movement. And you actually see them. They don't even call them churches. They call them synagogues. And they'll have... Now they're Christians. Do not misunderstand me. They're Christians. They believe in Christ. But they're actually trying... They, you know, you'll see them like in their worship services. They got their prayer shawls on. They got their yarmulkes. You know, put on your yarmulke. That's a different song. So, you know, but they do all that. And I would understand it if you're Jewish. But Paul says here, if you've been called in uncircumcision, what he's talking about is, are you called in being a Gentile? Are you called being a Gentile? Seek not to be a Jew. Or he says, if you're Jewish, are you called in circumcision? Seek not to be uncircumcised. I heard a guy preach one time, and he didn't understand a verse, and he was going, I'm not sure how you could become uncircumcised. (laughs) Yeah, go back to school. Anyway. No, he's talking about becoming a Jew or a Gentile and trying to live like one. You remember Peter, when he finally embraced his grace, when he got his fingers really around it, you know, the first thing he wanted to do was see what a pork chop tasted like, you know? And so so he does, you know? And the next thing you know, he starts being a hypocrite about it, though. You know, when he was around the Gentiles, he acted like one. He wanted to be like a Gentile. But then when the Jews came around, he kind of separated himself. Remember, Paul confronted him to his face. So Paul's going, look, don't do that. I remember the guy who took over for me at Calvary Chapel. Used to be my drummer. And I knew him for years, Harold Angle. If you're watching, Harold, I'm telling on you. I remember when I called Harold and I said, look, I want to talk to you because I could tell, you know, you can see when somebody is, you know, them that are, are them that do. You don't have to be a prophet. You just got to sit and watch them. You know, you can see a deacon, you know, a deacon when you see one, you'll know an elder when you see one, you'll know a pastor when you see one. And you could tell Harold was a good man. He just loved the people. He loved the Lord. And I wanted to send him to school. And I says, hey, would you be open to going to ministry school? I want to, you know, let me, let me send you. Because I see this in you. Do you, you know, is this something in your heart? Because if I'm wrong, just tell me. But it's, well, he confirmed that, okay? And and maybe I've told you this story, but for the sake of just repeating it, it wasn't too long after that. Now, Harold was one of those guys, we're the same age, but Harold was much cooler than I am. Harold had hair, it was like down to here. But really cool looking hair, Okay. Harold had like four or five earrings over here and four or five over here. And he would wear these coats. Very talented guy. You know, he's one of those artsy type, you know, and he worked for Longenberg. He was like a designer. And he wore, everything he wore looked really cool. <laughs> he just looked cool. He is cool. Got perfect beard, kind of, you know, kind of bikerish. Look, just really looked cool. And, he, and, and, you know, and I loved him as a drummer. So after all this talk about sending him to school, one Sunday... Uh, we're up there, the band's starting to practice. And our sanctuary was really long. It's, it was very long. There was an entrance, several entrances in the back. One came down from the cafe. And I see this individual coming. And, you know, sometimes early in the practice, people would show up to listen to us. And, but this was a stranger, you know, a strange-looking guy. And I'm watching, and, and I'm playing, because and, and, uh, we're still waiting on Harold to get there. And I'm looking, I'm going, who? And as this guy got closer and closer, I was going, oh, my, Lance. And here it was Harold. 
It was Harold with short hair. No earrings. Perfectly trimmed beard. Wearing clothes that looked normal. I said, what happened to you? <laughs> you know, it was, you talk about culture shock. I was blown away. And, you know, so we went and practiced. But later on, I took him off the side. I said, brother, what did you do? Well, you know, if I'm going to be in there. I said, no, no. <laughs> now, I said, listen, if God told you to do it, by all means do it. But however you're called, you see, this is the way the Lord wants you to remain. Because his style was not a problem, you see. It wasn't distracting anybody. It's just who he was. It, he wasn't trying to be cool. Harold just couldn't help it. It's just the way he was, you know. You know how people, you see people try to be cool. They normally don't pull it off very well. And uh, so, you know, but, but he did. He was able to pull it off. But my only point was he made this drastic change, you know. Is any man called being circumcised? Paul's going to look. Don't, don't even worry about that stuff. Circumcision is nothing. Being a Jew is nothing. Being a Gentile is nothing but the commandments of God. That's all that is. Let every man abide, he says, in the same calling wherein he was called. This is one of the major problems within the ministry today, gang. We send these guys off to seminary, you know, and they come from a farm or they come from some background where they got nothing. And they go to seminary and the next thing you know, they're taking a class and the first thing those guys teach them to do is put a suit on. You know, no, there's nothing wrong. Don't get me wrong. I got some Calvary guys and I know who wear suits. There's no big deal. No, listen, don't get me wrong. My question is, is, is that you? Is that you? <laughs> or is that somebody else? Does anybody here remember Mike Warnke? Mike Warnke was a comedian, uh, but he wrote a book. I won't get into all that. It was Satan Seller. It was a book. But anyway. I remember Mike Warnke telling his salvation story, and he did the same thing. He said when he got saved, he said the first thing he did was went out and bought a white suit. Yeah, a white one. Who would do that? You know? So he bought a white suit and said he got him a Bible that was big enough to choke a mule. And why did he do that? Because he had saw Pat Boone talking about Jesus, and he thought that was the way a Christian looked. So that's what he did. And that's so often, that's so typical of people. We want to focus on the outside. Because we think somehow that's going to garner respect. Listen to me. It's got nothing to do with it. Paul says, look, if that's the way you are, come as you are and abide as you are if it's not contradictory to Scripture. But so often we want to do that. We, why? Because fixing the outside is easy, isn't it? The Pharisees did it. Jesus even chided him for him. He says, you know, you whitewash the outside. You're like a whitewashed sepulcher. On the outside, you look great, but inside, you're full of dead man's bones. You know? So Paul says, look, however a man comes, let him therein abide. Now, that's not to say that some people don't need to change. Sometimes it's appropriate, no doubt. If your style or your lifestyle is in direct contradiction to the perfect teaching of the Word of God, then by all means forsake it. You know, by all means. But if not, you know, it's no big deal. You know, but sometimes it's important, it, it, it's appropriate to do it. Look at verse 21. He says, Art thou called being a servant? 
Don't even worry about it, he says. Take no care for it. But if thou mayest be made free, use it rather. For he that is called in the Lord, being a servant, is the Lord's freeman. Likewise also he that is called being free is Christ's servant. So even as a slave, Paul said that you're in Christ and you're free. And if you're free in Christ, you're free indeed. But not wanting to discourage these guys, he says, look, if you can be made free in a very literal sense, use that rather. You know, we think of slavery today as a distant, distant thing. And there are parts of the world where it's still prevalent. Not here. But it certainly was prevalent during the time of Paul. And so when he was talking to these guys and saying, look, are you called being a slave? It was a very real thing to them. Some of these guys were. And some of them did not necessarily like it. But he says, look, if you're in Christ, you're free. You know, I, I, I had the privilege of working in the prison system many years ago when I was a young man. And, you know, looking back on it, a Christian that is incarcerated, for whatever reason, is freer, is freer in many cases than those who are walking the street if he's in Christ, you know? Even though maybe he's done a crime or whatever and he's found himself in incarceration, the fact is if he's in Christ and, and he's repented of those things, he's actually freer behind bars, you know, than somebody who's walking the street who doesn't know the Lord. And so he that's called a slave in Christ is the Lord's free man. And, and the Lord's free man, if you come as a free person, you actually become a servant for Christ. Call Paul himself, you know, a bond servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. So... But if you can be free, Paul says, do that rather. Because verse 23, you were bought with a price. And we know what that price is. We sang about it. It was the precious blood of Jesus Christ. You were bought with a price. You're not your own, he told us before. Be not ye the servants of men. If you take a note, make note of that. Don't be a servant of men. Brethren, let every man wherein he is called therein abide with God. This is both true literally and spiritually. Being a man pleaser is a very dangerous proposition, my friends. It's never our advantage, never to our advantage, to allow ourselves to be under the inappropriate control or influence of others. It's just not. In fact, I like what Charles Spurgeon said about this, and I want to quote for him, and let me see if I can get it, get it right for you. And I quote, here's what Spurgeon said, Do not follow even good men slavishly. Do not say, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Calvin, I'm of Wesley. Did Calvin redeem you? Did Wesley die for you? Who's Calvin? And who's Wesley but ministers by whom you believed as the Lord gave unto you? Do not so surrender yourself to any leadership that you rather follow the man than his master. I will follow anybody if he goes Christ's way. But I will follow nobody by the grace of God if he does not go in that direction. That's wisdom. That's wisdom. We only follow those who follow the word of God. How can two men walk, the Bible says, except they be agreed? Once again, Paul gave the admonition to remain in that calling, wherein that you were called. This applies to everyone. 
married or unmarried, Jew or Gentile, free or slave, the implication is that we can seek God and seek His best and be used by Him right where you're at. And I love that. I could not tell you, I could not count the times that I would have people come to my office seeking counseling because they were having a problem at work. Happened all the time. Mostly men. I don't know why that is. Mostly men. Maybe it was just uh, where I was at, but it would just seem mostly men. But they would come in, and they would start, you know, oh, pray for me, Pastor. I have no idea. And um, where's my technical woman? Um, but anyway, they would come in, and they would begin to lay out all the problems that they were having within their um, job, you know. And, of course, the old adage is if I was, if I was captain of the ship, then uh, she'd be sailing a different course. And so often it would be, it just wouldn't be sailing in the right direction. But my point is, here's what I always pointed out to them. I used to tell them, look, who are you working for? And they would always say, well, I'm working for Longenberger, or I'm working for, I would say, no, 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 see, this, there's your problem. That's not who you're working for. You're working for the Lord. He just happens to be using that company to supply your need. But you're actually working for Jesus Christ. And if you're not, well, that's where your problem is. This is why you're having an issue. You know, we need to be able to keep our eyes and our focus on the Lord. Because that's who we're actually there. He says, brethren, let every man where he is called there and abide with God. You know, it, we just need to stay where we're at and let God use us in the position and in the place where we're at. I remember one time, you talk about being humbled. I've been very fortunate. I haven't had many jobs in my life. Most of my life I worked for myself because I owned a laboratory. But prior to that, I was a working musician. And in music, you either, it's either feast or famine. Sometimes you got to take, you got to play what you got to do. And then sometimes you just got to go work wherever you can get a job. And I wound up working at this place called Perry County Foods. It was a uh, pizza factory. You know, they made <laughs> pizza crust. You talk about a humbling experience, man. I mean, you know, it was, it was humbling. And yet, while I was there, I think I probably led more people to Christ than any job that I ever had. And it's a long story, and I'm not going to bore you with it. But, you know, the fact is, is that you can be used anywhere that you will allow yourself to be used. God is not looking for a person with ability. He's looking for a person with availability. And so we want to be available to the Lord. You know, Jew or Gentile, free or slave, let the Lord use you wherever you're at. So it's, it's pretty straightforward. Marriage, on the other hand, can be distractive. But so many other things can be too. And this is what Paul's talking about. Whatever that thing is that is distracting us, this is the very thing on which we need to turn our backs. Because we can allow ourselves to be distracted from the task at hand. What is our task at hand? To lead people to Christ. To lead people to Jesus. That's really what it's about. To tell the good news about what Jesus Christ has come to do. To see other people's lives changed. You know, I, I, I've been so fortunate. I am such, and I, you know, I know it's not luck, and I, I throw that out as a, 
a loose term because it's all Jesus. It's all God. But it, it blesses my heart every time somebody sits down with me and says, you know what? Your teaching has made a difference in my life. It's not me. It's the Bible. But I'm thankful that, that the Lord has allowed me to be a tool. And that's why I always encourage you guys, win somebody to the Lord. Because if you never experience that, you're never going to fully come to that, that place where you really feel like a tool in the box of God, if you understand what I'm saying. It's not enough to just sit and warm that pew, gang. Now, you can do that. You can warm a pew all your life and make it right into heaven. You can't. You just won't be very good and productive for the kingdom of God's sake. It's much better. It's just much, it's, it's what you want. Do you just want to warm a pew? Do you just want to tell your kids, well, we go to church every Sunday? Or do you really want to see somebody come along and go, man, I am so thankful that I ran into you. I'm so thankful for your ministry. You know, there's an old song, and, and I can't remember all of it, but it says, thank you for giving to the Lord. You know, I was a life that was changed. Sometimes it doesn't take much. And sometimes leading somebody to Jesus does more for you. Now, I realize that adding a soul to the kingdom is a great thing, you know, and the angels are rejoicing and all that. But I'm telling you, it's life-changing for the person because God is telling you at that moment that, you know what, I'm going to use you. So allow yourself to be used, no matter where you're at, no matter what you're doing, in that place, allow yourself to be a tool of the Lord. Verse 25, he says, Now concerning virgins, I have no commandment of the Lord, yet I give my judgment. As one that hath obtained mercy of the Lord to be faithful. I suppose, therefore, that it is good for the present distress. I say that it is good for a man so to be. So Paul's referring here to the unmarried and to this particular uh, sense. The term virgin here actually can be male or female. It doesn't have to be just a woman. It just talks about being unmarried, really. And so Paul said that he had no commandment from the Lord. But that doesn't mean, and I heard a guy say one time, that there are passages in the Bible you don't have to listen to. Okay, listen to me. Just because Paul says, I have no commandment of the Lord, doesn't mean that it's less inspired. Everything he said and wrote was inspired by God. So you can't really, you can't really use that, although I've heard people do it. So more likely, you know, what Paul says here, The reason that he's given his judgment is because he's dealing with life situations, which are so drastically different from one person to the other. He will not, nor could not really give a command in, you know, in relationship to it, dealing with certain issues as far as virgins, as far as them getting married, that kind of thing. But rather, he gives this inspired advice. And that's why he says, I'm not giving this by commandment. But it's godly principle is what he's trying to give us. So Paul mentions here that his advice was being given, like I said, in conjunction to this present distress. If you may make a note of that, a present distress. What, present, what was it? Well, we don't really know, but some people believe that there was a persecution that had cropped up. Remember, Paul thought he was going to be living in the time when Jesus returned. And there was a persecution that had cropped up at this particular time in Corinth. Now, he was trying to tell these guys not to get married. Why? Because it's one thing to suffer persecution by yourself. And men will know this better than, than the women. 
Men are protected. It's the way God's made us. It's just the way we are. If you had a wife, you'll, you really know what I'm talking about. Now, if you're single and you're being picked on, you're being persecuted, and you're a Christian, that's one thing. You know, do your worst is what I would tell them. But if I had to sit and watch my wife be tortured, which happened all the time back then and today in certain parts of the world, they will make you. I heard one, I was listening to a, an encounter yesterday where they took the man, the husband, and they literally cut his eyelash, her eyelids off so he had no choice but to watch what they were doing to his wife and his daughters. And that's the kind of persecution he suffered. This is why Paul, in that present distress, was telling them, you're better off to stay single. Because persecution on your own is tough enough. Tough enough. But why make it worse on yourself if you had to sit and watch somebody you love? You know? So keep that in perspective. When, when we're talking about these things, Paul really believed. You know, and the persecution was real at that time. But on top of that, he really believed that the Lord was imminently returning. Now he goes on. In verse 27 here, and he kind of goes back to this old theme here. He says, art thou bound unto a wife? Well, seek not to be loosed. Art thou loosed from a wife? And the word loose here in the Greek means divorced. Seek not a wife. But, and if thou marry, thou hast not sinned. And if thy virgin marry, she hath not sinned. Nevertheless, such shall have trouble in the flesh. But I spare you. So Paul touched on the issue of divorce once again in the context of that present distress. And we talked about it last time, you know, because it, within the body of Christ, you know, we've made it a scarlet letter. And it's unfortunate because so many people have been touched by it. So many people. It's not God's will. It's not his perfect will. Uh, but there is permissive will in that. And we talked about it. If you need the notes on that, go back and, and get the notes on it. The Bible's very clear. And it, like he says here, but if thou marry, thou hast not sinned. He says, and if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Nevertheless, you shall have trouble in the flesh. You know, it's going to be tough. Because some of it, especially when it comes to divorce and remarriage, it's self-inflicted. And it brings its own set of repercussions. And it's just not a good thing. But it happens. And there is forgiveness and there's restoration in Jesus Christ. Verse 29, he says, but this I say, brother, the time is short. Once again, he's emphasizing how short the time he believed it was. It remaineth that both they that have wives be as though they had none, and they that weep as though they wept not, they that rejoice as though they rejoice not, and they that buy as though they possess not, and they that use this world as not abusing it, for the fashion of this world passeth away. If you take a note... You need to underline, time is short. Paul was certainly not advocating as though a married person should live as a single person that is in total disregard to his spouse. It's not what he was saying. What he was saying was that time is short and because the Lord's return is imminent, we should not lose our heavenly perspective. And that we should keep the main thing, the main thing. That's really what he was saying. You know, so even within a spouse, because when you're when in your marriage, your attention's divided. It just is. But he says that time has come. He says the time is short. We should be living. You know, once again, not to, 
neglect a spouse, but to keep your perspective on heaven. Remember, Jesus was the one who said that a man's life does not consist in the abundance of the things that he possesses. So often we can allow ourselves to be busy and, and distracted with accumulation. And I'm shocked even at myself. I remember we, when we first moved to this area, we lived in this little tiny apartment. And, you know, of course, now, then we bought a house. And after we decided to stay, and within five years, I've got a basement that's full of junk. And I'm going, where did all this stuff come from? Because I don't remember moving it. You know, and that's the problem with it because we wind up accumulating stuff. But Paul says, look, nothing wrong with that. Just don't be overcome by it. Realize, you know, that this stuff is going to pass away. You know, we used to have a term that we used to say years ago, it's all going to burn. And eventually that's exactly what's going to happen. It's all going to go away. Eventually the Lord is coming back. So he says, look, use the world, but don't abuse it. Because in the end, it's all going to burn. Verse 32, he says, but I would not have you to be careless. He doesn't want you to be worrying, he said. He that's unmarried care for the things that belongs to the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But he that's married care for the things that are of the world, how he may please his wife. There's a difference also between a wife and a virgin. An unmarried woman cares for the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and in spirit. And if, you, if you're a virgin, if you're a young woman or a young man, take note that he says that you can be and should be holy in body and in mind. So often, purity is something that the church has failed to preach or to even give young people a reason why they should. And we need to get back to that, you know, because within a Christian household, this should be the, the case. Save yourself. Wait on the Lord. You won't be sorry if you do. There's a difference, he says, between a wife and a, and a virgin. Because the wife, of course, is worried about how she's going to please her husband. The virgin can be more focused on the Lord. And as this I speak, he says to your own prophet, verse 35, not that I might cast a snare upon you, but for that which is comely and that you may attend upon the Lord without distraction. Once again, no distraction. It's easy to get distracted. Some of us more than others, you know, and it can be with anything. And sometimes it can be with very mundane things, things that seem harmless. Keep your eyes on the Lord. Do not lose perspective. Jesus is coming. But if any man think that he behaveth himself uncomely toward his virgin... And she is past the flower of her age and needs so require, let him do what he will. He sinneth not, let them marry. Nevertheless, he that standeth steadfast in his heart, having no necessity, but hath power over his own will, and hath so decreed in his heart that he will keep his virgin, doth, uh, doth well. So he that giveth her in marriage doth well, but he that giveth her not in marriage does better. What's he talking about? He's talking about fathers who have daughters who are unmarried. They had come to the point, because it's just the Jewish mindset, and especially at this particular time, because they thought the imminent return of Christ was at hand, because Paul was telling them that. They did not want to let their daughters marry. And so this question had cropped up, what's better? Because some of the women wanted to get married. Paul addresses that. He goes, look, 
if they marry, it's no big deal. They're not sinning, you know. But if a or if her dad wants to keep her and and, and he's sold out on that, well, he does well, you know. If he if, if if they want to let him get married, let him get married. If they don't, that's fine too. Basically, he says though that the one who doesn't get married actually is doing better because they won't have that trouble in the flesh. They're not going to have that added distraction. Is really what he's talking about. Now. Keep it in mind. Paul was writing this from his perspective. And I've kind of drove, driven that home tonight because I wanted to get to this last bit. He was really convinced that he was living in the last day. Now, the question is, why would Paul not have known? Well, you know, you can get caught up in some things. And I, and I think Paul was still a man, used by God. I'm sure he had his flaws. He even admitted that he did. But at this particular time and juncture of his ministry, he was totally convinced that Jesus Christ was coming back at that moment. I mean, he, he, you know, the clock was ticking. He really believed it. Now, we know that he changed his mind because later on, Paul talks about the issue of marriage, and then he gets to Ephesians chapter 5, and he begins to tell us that it's actually a beautiful picture and model of Christ in the church. And Paul kind of backed away from that. Not that he backed away from being you know, aware that Jesus is coming soon, but he, he realized that that prophetic thing was going to be a little ways off, probably not in his lifetime. Now, Paul was a teacher of the Word, and we know that he understood the Word of God, but it kind of always blew me away when I read chapter 7 because it's so evident to me that he had forgotten Ezekiel. And I know he couldn't have, because I know Paul knew it. He had to have known it, because he was a teacher. So he had to know that the nation of Israel had to be restored in order for Christ to return. It's a great prophecy. I was reminded of it this morning. I was actually listening to the president. He was giving his speech, if you want to call it that. He kind of shoots from the cuff. It's pretty funny to watch, really. <laughs> you know, but, but it's great stuff. Because it just amazes me the men that God uses. And he uses men that you think not. Before this man was elected, and I'm dating my broadcast, I know, but before he was elected... Man, I heard all kinds of Christians, just self-righteous, you know, and they, oh, this guy was a, you know, he's arrogant, he's this, he's that, he's all this, you know, and, and just said all manner of evil about him. I'll never vote for him, I, you know, who, who could do that, you know, and then, of course, he, he got in. <laughs> he got in. And one of the first things he does is he starts cutting funding, so abortion's not as easy to do. And then he does this crazy thing that every president in this country had talked about, but had never done. And he moved our embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. Now, I said that to say this. Paul believed he was living in the last days. Let me tell you something why you have a more abundant reason to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that time is short. In the prophet Ezekiel, if you go back and read, I won't quote the whole thing. Let me give you the gist of it, 36, 37, 38. We are told that the nation of Israel was divided into two. That they had two kings. 
And that for two days they would be out of the land. On the third day, God would draw them back into the land. And of course, the Bible says a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is a day to the Lord. For 2,000 years, Israel was out of the land. On the third beginning of the third millennial, they returned. That happened in 1948. In Matthew 24, Jesus said that when you see the fig tree blossom and bud, now hermeneutics... Fig trees always stand for Israel. It always represents Israel. First mention in the Old Testament follows through to the new. When you see the fig tree begin to blossom and bud, you know that it's there even at the door. Jesus said, in fact, that generation will not pass until all these things will be fulfilled. Many books were written about it. And people started calculating. Well, what's the generation? Well, the Lord said that he kept the children of Israel in the wilderness for 40 years until that generation had passed. It's relatively understood that 40 years is a generation. Well, the problem is if you go from 40 years to 1948, you know, what's that bring you up to? So let me do the math. 88. And there was a crazy guy that wrote a book. Called 88 Reasons Why 1988. Anybody read that? It was nuts. It was crazy. Because when you start making dates, that's what you're going to look like. You're going to look crazy because the Bible says no man knows the day or the hour except the Lord. Father. Father only. How be it? We are told that we can know the time. The day that we live in. The time that we live in. We won't know the hour, but we know the time. But I remember reading many books back then, and I, and I remember thinking they had missed one drastic and I want to draw your attention to it. Open your Bible, if you will, to Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 12. Very powerful verse here. And, and a lot of people didn't understand it. And I've never heard anybody write a book on it, but they should. Maybe I will. Because I think that this is part of their problem. You know, when you understand the time in which you live. You know, Jesus chided the Pharisees and, and, the, and the scribes. And, you know, he said, you can look at the sky and red sky morning sailor take warning. Red sky at night sailor's delight. You can discern this time or the sky, but you can't discern the time in which you live. Because not only should they have known the first coming of Christ, but they should have understood the second coming of Christ just by looking at the prophecies. Remember the Magi, they looked at, they understood that the Messiah was coming because they studied the prophecy. They knew. In Zechariah chapter 12, look at verse 6. He says, in that day, I will make the governors of Judah like a hearth of fire among the wood. And like a torch of fire in the sheath, he shall devour all the people round about on the right hand and on the left hand. And Jerusalem shall be inhabited again in her own place, even in Jerusalem. The Lord also shall save the tents of Judah first, that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem do not magnify themselves against Judah. In that day shall the Lord defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem. He that is feeble among them in that day shall be as David, and the house of David shall be called as God as the angel of the Lord before them. 
And it shall come to pass in that day I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. He goes on, and you can read in the next chapter, and they shall look upon me whom they have pierced. In the next chapter, they say, well, where did you receive these wounds? And he said, in your hands, and I will say unto them, in the house of my friends. But Jerusalem shall be inhabited again in its own place, even in Jerusalem. Israel became a nation in 1948, true. But what didn't happen in 1948 was that Israel did not have Jerusalem. Oh, we had a part of it. We just didn't have the main old city, the one that David built. We occupied the outer part until 1967. The War of Yom Kippur, the Six-Day War. When Israel went in and finally said, you know what, we're not taking this anymore, we're taking back our city. And they took it back, which we still have. But, and it was inhabited again. But the only people that recognized it as a capital was Israel. Until 2018. 2018. That's this year. We moved from Tel Aviv, which is the most secular city in Israel. You know, most people call it the Holy Land. In reality, when you go there, most Jews are not even religious. That's why most of them seek to live in Tel Aviv and those type of places, because it's a secular city. They eat pork. They don't call it pork. They call it white meat. Yeah. They do whatever they want to do. But in Jerusalem, it's different. Jerusalem's different. Jerusalem is the heart of the Lord. It's the the apple of his eye. It's the center of the universe. Literally. Literally. That one little tiny square mile of a city has seen so much of human history and represented so much of what God has done. That's why a prophecy upon prophecy is predicated upon what happens to it. Paul believed he was living in the last day. I'm telling you, you are living in the last day. He said, that day shall not come to pass. That generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. If you are 70 years old or older, you were alive when Israel became a nation. You were alive. You were alive when Jerusalem was finally taken back. And you're alive today if you saw the capital of the, you know, our embassy put at the capital and called Jerusalem the capital of Israel. Now, whether you noticed it or not, the world went nuts. Now, they've kind of forgotten about it a little bit now, but at the time, they went ballistic. The audacity of this crazy nutcase that we have in the White House that he would call Jerusalem the capital of Israel. Not only call it that, he said within three years, well, it happened a lot quicker than that. He was going to move the embassy there. Well, it's already there. If Paul had the anticipation of the coming of Christ... You have it more so. 
You have it more so. Jesus said, I told you these things beforehand so that when they come to pass, you might believe. If you know these things, brethren, what manner of men ought we to be? What task should we be at hand? Now, there's no doubt in my mind that some of us will not live to see it. Some of us could go home and die tonight. I mean, it's possible. I know not what the Lord has in store, but I know one thing that's in his word, and that is his coming is imminent, and he's predicated us knowing how soon upon prophecy, and we've watched it happen. We're watching it. Time would not allow me, because I know you guys want to eat, to go into the other prophecies when the wall fell. You remember in Eastern Europe? I could take you to Ezekiel and show you great prophecies in relationship to that. I watched it on, on television, amazed even at the time. And that was 1990, I think. But 2018, I really had not realized that there was one more. See, everybody looked at Israel, and they said, oh, Israel became a nation. That, that generation is not going to pass to be fulfilled. Well, that generation is getting older, and they're coming close to passing, let's face it. Not, not saying if you're 70 or older that you know, you're on your last leg, but I mean, come on. You know, we're all getting there. I'm turning 60 this year, or this, well, here in a month or sooner. But it is true. And what should we be doing? Blessed is that man, the Lord said. When he comes, we'll find him so doing. Not keeping the law, not doing a rule and regulation, but preaching the gospel, bringing people into the kingdom so that when we leave, which will be soon, we can go with the whole family. We have more reason to know that it's close. Time is short. Father, we love you. And Lord, we... Thank you for your word and for the prophetic things that you have given us that we might know and understand the time in which we live, Lord Father, so that we are not caught unawares. I pray that you would be with those who might listen to this broadcast, Lord Father, that they would be encouraged to get their life straight with you if it's not. And if it is, I pray that you would implant an urgency within our heart, Lord Father, that every chance we get, that we would understand that we need to lead people to you, Lord. And at least give them the good news. We thank you. We love you so much for all that you want to do. Help us to not lose perspective, Lord, or to be distracted. In Jesus' name, amen.